In 2004, the Dover School District of Pennsylvania took a remarkable step. Despite a decades-long status quo where only evolution could be taught in the biology classroom, the district changed its biology teaching curriculum to include a book on intelligent design. The uproar had begun. Immediately, 11 parents in the district sued the school over a violation of the First Amendment and the supposed teaching of religion in a science classroom. After a fierce back and forth during the trial, the judge decided against the school district. And the intelligent design movement faced a harsh defeat in the courts. But science isn't decided in the courts. It's decided in the laboratory. It's decided between practicing scientists. And it surely isn't decided by whether it aligns with the judge's interpretation of the US Constitution. And so, the debate rages on. And the intelligent design movement exists as prominently today as it ever has. In this ultimate part of our origin series, we take a look at the movement that has perhaps sparked more controversy over the past few decades than any other, as we delve into the topic of intelligent design. another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have Intelligent Design Converts, The God of the Gaps, and whether Richard Dawkins is even relevant anymore. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Dr. Jonathan Lionheart. Howdy! We are at the long, torturous end to our four-part origin series. How's it been for you? Yeah, I feel like we didn't very intelligently design this series because... We did three episodes, and then we had a couple of episodes in between, and now we're finally finishing the creation series. So we're going to have to come up with some excuse for why that design flaw was there. See, that's the thing, is sometimes you can, what seems to be unintelligent is actually quite intelligently designed after all. So that filler episode that we had, it's doing really well. So I think, so I like, think people needed a break. I think people needed a little bit of a break from just creation stuff. So, like, you're an idiot, Seth, but it actually took a lot of work to create you. A lot, a lot. It takes a lot of fine-tuning to make a fool as great as I. Pamela Anderson once said, a dumb blonde can't play a dumb blonde. And in the same way, an idiot can't make an idiot such as Seth. It takes mastery of the craft to create such precision as this. I just want to note that you have never once referenced a scripture, but you have referenced Pamela Anderson on this podcast. I've referenced scripture! Uh-huh, when? In the beginning was Pamela. Uh, <laughs> all right, John. After all of this, this long journey, who are we capping off with? 
Today, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Stephen Meyer, who many of you may have heard of or watched a video of or even read his books at some point. He did his PhD in History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University before becoming a professor at Whitworth College and later Palm Beach Atlantic University. He has written a number of books, including Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, and The Return of the God Hypothesis. And he is probably the foremost proponent of intelligent design and the intelligent design movement in the world today. So he's really the right person to be talking to about this subject. Yeah, he's been on a lot of things. I think he has something like two front page New York Times articles because he's created such great controversy within the scientific community because of his ideas. You only get a bit of him here, but if you want more, which I'm sure you will, be sure to check out our Patreon because for $5, you get twice the content for this episode. We get into some personal questions about his own intellectual development. We jump in deeper into some more sophisticated topics of intelligent design and even have a discussion afterward. All of that for the price of a Starbucks. I've been able to meet him in person, and he really is an incredibly kind individual. You really get to see that in the bonus content, and we're really lucky to have him. Yeah, it's great to have such a well-educated and read person representing a movement that many have dismissed and rejected, and intelligent design is controversial. It's not only scientifically controversial, it's theologically controversial. It's going to be good to have him in here to pepper him with some good questions. You know, at first I thought you were going to say... It's good to have an intelligent and kind person here to represent Cambridge. And I was like, yeah, it's a nice change of pace for us. I'm not representing Cambridge, Seth. I am Cambridge. <laughs> the, the arrogance that... Yeah. It, well, no, it's, it's, a good, it's a good burn. I, I appreciate it. I think we should just note that many of our guests are from Cambridge because Seth's alma mater, Oxford, doesn't seem to produce people worth featuring on the show. Whereas I guess Cambridge just does. Look at that. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Meyer. Could you tell us a little bit about your academic background and at what points your own spiritual journey kind of intertwined with your scientific and philosophical journey? I did a bachelor's degree in a double degree in physics and in earth sciences and took a minor in philosophy as an undergraduate. My first job out of university was as a geophysicist for an oil company where I worked for four years doing seismic digital signal processing. And in 19, well, I won't say the year that will date me, but uh, four years into that, uh, a conference came to the city where I was working, Dallas, Texas. And uh, it was an extraordinary and unusual conference that had been convened there of scientists and philosophers discussing the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin and nature of human consciousness possibly the three greatest scientific issues that lie at the boundary with, with philosophy. And the conference was divided between scientists and philosophers who had a materialistic uh, worldview and those who had a theistic worldview. And so they were debating these big issues, discussing them from competing philosophical perspectives. And this really was a kind of a turning point for me. I had always been interested in the scientific issues that were at that boundary, at the intersection between science and philosophy. And I was surprised in listening to the conversations that it actually seemed to me that the theists 
of the intellectual initiative in the discussion. It was a, this was a world-class panel in the cosmology session. There was an astronomer from Caltech, Alan Sandage was there. He had been expected to, to sit on the panel with the other materialist, agnostic, atheist uh, scientists, but unexpectedly arose to the podium and sat with the theists. And then in his discussion explained how the evidence from astrophysics and cosmology was pointing to a beginning to the universe which had caused him deep soul searching as to his worldview and was one of the factors that had led him to embrace theism and which he announced publicly at that time. He also talked about the fine tuning and a number of other things. So that was a kind of a, an interesting seminal event because I'd been working for four years doing work in uh, applied science. The, the other thing that there was a big discussion of the origin of life, and it was acknowledged by panelists on both sides of that worldview divide that we didn't have an adequate chemical evolutionary theory of the origin of life, and that the big problem was the origin of the information that was stored in the DNA molecule and expressed in RNA and, and in proteins. And I was intrigued with that. I'd been, I was doing and using an early form of information technology with the digital signal processing that I was doing. And so it was absolutely intriguing to me that the, this great mystery of the origin of life was essentially a question of information technology and its origin. And that's where I kind of got hooked on the origin of life problem. There was one of the scientists at that conference was Charles Thaxton, who had been the lead author on a three-author book called The Mystery of Life's Origin, and he happened to be working for a think tank in Dallas. And so I ended up spending a lot of time with him in the ensuing year. And a year later, I went off to Cambridge to do a PhD, well, initially to do a master's degree. But when I started a PhD, I, was, I really wanted to work on this origin of life question. And I ended up doing a PhD on origin of life biology in a interdisciplinary history and philosophy of science program at Cambridge. So it was, I, I'm kind of all mixed up. It's hard to say what I am. What is intelligent design and how are you mixed up in it? <laughs> well, the how am I mixed up in it's a long story, but the rough and ready definition, intelligent design is the idea that there are certain features of living systems and indeed the universe that are best explained by the activity of a designing intelligence or a mind or a conscious agent, as opposed to an undirected material process such as in the case of biological systems, natural selection acting on random mutations, for example. So it's the idea that there is evidence of design in the natural world that can be detected scientifically by considerations of, explanatory, of competing explanatory power. Oh, and how did I get mixed up in it? Well, I, I gave a little bit of, of that answer by mentioning the work of Charles Thaxton, Walter Bradley, and Roger Olson, who wrote, wrote this book, Mystery of Life's Origin. I met them at this conference in Dallas when I was early in my career, and they had written an epilogue. to Their, their book was a mainly a critique of current chemical evolutionary models for the origin of life, but they had written an epilogue to the book in which they had floated the idea that the information that was stored in the DNA molecule, which, which was not submitting to materialistic explanations, might in fact be a consequence of some sort of, in, as they put it, intelligent cause. Their idea was just intuitively, we know that information is a mind product. Maybe we're barking up the wrong tree, trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Maybe what we're looking at is evidence of intelligent agency, and we need to be open to that when we're constructing theories of origins. And so in their epilogue, they suggested that there was a category of science, which they called origin science, where 
considerations of intelligent causes or creative intelligence might be a, a legitimate inference or explanation. That was where I first encountered what we now call the theory of intelligent design. I was intrigued, but not fully convinced of their approach. And when I went off to grad school, I wanted to do some more work on specifically on the methods of reasoning that are used in historical sciences and to evaluate whether or not there might in fact be a basis for a scientific case for intelligent design. And that was a lot of the part of the set of animating questions that led me to do the work on origin of life biology that I did. When you say a designer, does that suggest that intelligent design proponents are all theists and or Christians, or is the movement much broader than that? It's broader than that. And that is, and there's a good reason for that. And that is that one of the things I argued, well, in, de in developing, first of all, in intellectual autobiography, as I looked at the methods of reasoning that were employed in historical sciences, in particular in evolutionary biology, I found that there was a, a very clear set of of methodological desiderata that had been articulated first by Charles Lyell and then also by Darwin himself. And the idea, and uh, Lyell put it very succinctly, he said that when we're trying to explain an event in the remote past, we need to look for, in his phrase was, causes now in operation. And that was the idea behind his uniformitarian reasoning that the, the present is the key to the past, by which he meant that our present knowledge of cause and effect should guide our reconstruction of what happened in the past that should guide our assessment of what possible causes are most plausible because we have knowledge of what different types of causal entities can and cannot produce. So as I began to think about that, at a certain point I realized, I asked myself a question, well, what, what are the causes now in operation for the production of digital information? Because that's essentially what we have in DNA and RNA. And um, there was a early pioneer in the application of information theoretic concepts to the analysis of molecular biological systems. His name was Henry Quassler. And he, in an offhand moment, observed that the production of information, of new information, is habitually associated with conscious activity. And so I thought, well, wait a minute, if you apply the Lyellian dictum to that observation, we have an answer to the question, what are the causes now in operation for the production of information? We have our uniform and repeated experience. Our habitual association is between the activity of a mind and the, and the generation of information in a digital typographic or alphabetic form, what we call in a more technical context, specified complexity or specified information. And so I realized at that point that by following the standard methods of scientific reasoning, historical scientific reasoning that had been developed by figures in the 19th century like Lyell and Darwin, and which methods are still used today, it was possible to make a strong historical scientific inference and case for the idea that intelligent design had been responsible or an intelligent agency or conscious activity had been responsible for the development of the information that's necessary to produce the first life. Now, in making that inference, I'm inferring to a mind of some kind, and we have direct introspective knowledge of the existence of conscious agency because we are conscious agents and we know of what it is like to be a conscious agent from that introspective experience. We also have knowledge of what conscious agents can do. And we also know some things that conscious agents can do that undirected material processes or brute matter cannot do. 
And so all of that background knowledge makes it possible to infer to the activity of a mind of some kind, one with at least the capabilities of our own minds based on the specific effects that we may find in the natural world, whether it's an inscription on something like the Rosetta Stone, or whether it's a piece of computer code, or whether it's uh, the, the information that we find in DNA. So as a first step in evaluating the ultimate origins question, the origin of life, I argued in my first book, Signature in the Cell, that we can infer to a mind of some kind. Now, at that point, there's a number of different metaphysical options as to the identity of that designing intelligence. And that's why there are proponents of intelligent design who are theologically agnostic, some who have proposed designers other than God, but I, I am a theist. And in my most recent book, I explained the reasons, some of my reasons for being a theist, including the scientific reasons, because I think there's other evidence that bears on the question of the identity of the designing intelligence. But if you just look at the biology, it's possible that the intelligence responsible for life might be a transcendent intelligence of the type affirmed by traditional theists, or it might be an imminent intelligence within the cosmos. And there have been scientists who have proposed this somewhat exotic theory called panspermia, the idea that life on Earth was seeded here by an intelligent agent from somewhere out in space. No less a personage, Francis Crick, at one point floated that idea although I think later he regretted it and said he wouldn't make any more speculations on the origin of life problem. It was so difficult. Anyway, so not all proponents of intelligent design are theists, but I happen to be a theist and a proponent of intelligent design. So panspermia is a very intelligent way to say aliens. <laughs> well, it is exactly that. Yeah. And when you say it, it's a little, it, it seems exotic. And it, you may remember that Richard Dawkins floated this idea in an interview with Ben Stein in the film Expelled several years ago. Uh, and he definitely later came to regret it. And I think he even claimed he was somehow trapped into saying this. I'd, when you watch the interview, it's hard to see how he was trapped because Ben Stein sat there very quietly, allowing him plenty of rope with which to hang himself. Ben Stein asked him, well, what are the odds that intelligent design could have something to do with the problem of the origin of life? Because Dawkins had just admitted that no one knows how the first life, the first cell arose. And he said, well, it could be that, and then he went on to speculate that, yes, intelligent design might have played a role in the origin of life, but it would have been through, uh, as I said, a strictly rational, explicable process that a life form on another planet evolved through an undirected material process. And then that intelligent being designed life and seeded it to planet Earth. I, as I say, I think he later either retracted that or regretted it or whatever, but it has been Fred Hoyle considered that possibility. There have been some serious scientists who have floated it. And Crick was the first in his little book, Life Itself, in 1981, and then later said he would offer no more speculation about the origin of life problem. It was just simply too hard. Speaking of Richard Dawkins, say you had an elevator pitch where you had like 30 minutes with him to sit down and talk about the best evidence for intelligent design. You've talked about it a little bit, but what would be the first things you'd want to marshal in your defense? I don't really have any great desire to have a long conversation with Professor Dawkins. We offered several times the opportunity for public conversations. He did take one with John Lennox, but he was on a national talk show that's based here in Seattle with Michael Medved. And someone called in and, and suggested that he do a debate or a discussion with me. And he said, said he would not do it. He said, your people haven't earned it, he said. So anyway, I, I think Professor Dawkins has slightly overplayed his hand with his rabid scientific atheism. And 
I don't think that the so-called new atheists are in any way winning the argument. They had a lot of momentum around 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, but I think they've, they've massively overplayed their hand. I think actually on merit, the proponents of intelligent design and the broader, I think, theistic interpretation of scientific evidence is beginning to win the day. Scientific atheism has become very weird. One among many criteria for judging the merits of a hypothesis is the degree to which it is parsimonious, that it does not multiply endlessly unnecessary theoretical postulates or entities, the Occam's razor principle. But scientific atheism, in order to save the appearances, to say to explain the data, has had to invent increasingly exotic postulations. We were just talking about one. You've got the, the evidence of the digital code in the DNA, and this has not been well explained by chance or necessity, physical chemical necessity, or prebiotic natural selection, or the RNA world, or many, many, many different attempts have been made to explain this naturalistically, and they've failed. And so scientific atheists have been forced to posit space alien designers. And then when that it seems as exotic to their listeners as it is, well, then they backtrack and say, well, we, we weren't serious or we were, we were cornered into saying that. We have the problem of the fine-tuning. And scientific atheists have posited, instead of a fine-tuner, they've posited the multiverse, the idea that there's billions and billions and billions of other universes out there, so many, in fact, that eventually in some universe, the right combination of the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe arose, and we just happen to be in the lucky one. But then it comes out that for the multiverse hypothesis to be plausible, there must be a universe generating mechanism. Two have been proposed, one based on string theory and another based on inflationary cosmology. And it turns out that for those mechanisms to be viable or for them to plausibly have the capability of generating new universes, they themselves would have to be exquisitely finely tuned. So fine tuning elicits the multiverse hypothesis, which in turn depends upon prior unexplained fine-tuning, and you're right back to where you started. Uh, in cosmology, we've gone from the evidence of a beginning and the development of a new cosmological argument for the existence of God to people like Lawrence Krauss and Hawking and Vilenkin proposing basically what in Krauss's formulation, a universe from nothing. And this is the, the go-to atheistic argument now, is the universe came from nothing and nothing but pre-existing immaterial laws of physics. So you actually have, the, you have a material universe coming out of math. I, and I, I show in the book that either that's incoherent or it actually, I, I think it actually could be coherent, but only if those pre-existing physical laws that pre-exist any material substrate exist in a mind, and then you're back to a form of theism. So I think the, the big questions about origins, and I would throw into that the question of consciousness itself, are things that materialism is simply failing to explain and, is, and the materialists are groping. And so I don't actually think the conversation with the scientific, the hardline scientific materialists is that fruitful anymore. I think they're past their poll date, and I think the discussion is moving on beyond them. Speaking of evidences for design, there's a lot of talk about the Cambrian explosion, uh, and you talk about that a lot, especially in your book, Darwin's Doubt. 
What is the Cambrian explosion and why is it considered such a good piece of evidence for intelligent design? Well, the Cambrian explosion refers to the geologically abrupt appearance of a whole range of animal forms which exemplify distinct body plans. In fact, the majority of the body plans that ever that have ever existed on planet Earth. So it's an event in the history of life that displays an abrupt appearance of a huge amount of morphological innovation, new forms of life for which there were no antecedents in the earlier Precambrian strata. If you look at the strata below the strata where these new forms arise, there are no discernible connections between those forms and anything that went before. And so this is a really dramatic disconfirmation of the Darwinian gradualistic picture or depiction of the history of life. It's not what you would expect on the basis of Darwinian gradualism, where you would expect instead the tree-like picture of the history of life suggests a continuous morphing and changing from simple forms into more complex forms. And we just simply don't see those intermediates in the fossil record, especially as the fossil record is attesting to the origin of the major and distinct body plans that arise in the history of life. So in the, in the first instance, it's a challenge to the Darwinian picture of the history of life. It's also a challenge to the Darwinian understanding of the mechanism by which new form is, ha, has arisen. Because the, the, the event is geologically abrupt on the order of about 10 million years, and people have quibbled about that, I think you can actually make a case that in the case of the Cambrian, between 13 and 16 major body plans arise in about a 6 million year window. Others arise in a little wider window. Some have said, well, maybe as much as 25. Some have even argued 40. Doesn't really matter because it's not only geologically abrupt as a percentage of the history of life on Earth or the percentage of life of the geological time scale from the beginning of the, our planet to the present, it's also biologically abrupt. If you analyze the the origin of these new forms from the standpoint of the Darwinian math that flows out of something like population genetics. Population genetics allows us to calculate how much change should occur in a given amount of time if we know certain factors like the mutation rate, the, the generation times, and the population sizes. And on any reasonable sort of population genetics analysis, 6 million, 10 million, 80 million years is not enough time to develop all the new morphological innovation that arises in the Cambrian. What, tip, what people typically do to extend the period of the Cambrian is they, they take different pulses of innovation and group them all and say, well, it all happened in 80 million years. But what's really interesting is the pulse. The pulses are bounded and you get new forms of life arising at different periods, even during the Cambrian and the Precambrian and the Ediacaran period. But to extend that time to say, well, it was longer than 10 million years, people have had to include multiple separate pulses where you get innovations of multiple separate forms of life. And that's really kind of a cheat. But even if you allow that, it doesn't matter. The time allowed is not enough to generate the amount of new form that arises by reference to the Darwinian mechanism. And we, we have people working on a, what we call the waiting times problem. You may remember a few years ago that Michael Behe wrote some things about the waiting times with respect to 
human origins and said to get two coordinated mutations in the hominid line, you would need about 500 million years, he calculated in his book, The Edge of Evolution. And two mathematical biologists at Cornell said, no, oh, Behe, that can't be right. And they recalculated and said, oh yeah, Behe's wrong. It isn't 500 million years. Behe may have even calculated it at a billion. Can't remember the exact figure, doesn't matter. They came back and said, no, it's 200 million. Well, the point is moot because according to evolutionary phylogenies, humans and chimps diverged from their common ancestor about five to six million years ago. So. This waiting times problem is very is is quite acute up and down the fossil record. We have some really important work going on on that with Gunter Beckley, a German paleontologist, working with Richard Sternberg and Ola Husserer. Husserer is a first-rate population geneticist, mathematician from University of Stockholm, and they'll have some stuff coming out on this. But you take anything like any anatomical innovation, for example, the feather of a bird or some of the, the anatomical characters that make aquatic mammals different than terrestrial mammals. And you do a waiting times analysis on it, and you find that the expected waiting times are far beyond what's allowed in the fossil record. And that problem applies in space to the Cambrian explosion, irrespective of whether you date it as, as I do and most paleontologists do as about a 10 million year event, or whether you open up the window through various sleights of hand and say, well, it's 80 million years, doesn't matter. It's not nearly enough time. So that's the, the second challenge. And I still haven't answered your question because you asked, well, why does it, why does it suggest intelligent design? It's, just to be clear, it's a challenge to the Darwinian picture of the history of life, to the gradualistic picture of the history of life. It's a challenge to the efficacy of the Darwinian and other evolutionary mechanisms for reasons of, among others, for inadequate amount of time. Actually, in my book, Darwin's Doubt, I go through three or four other challenges to the adequacy of the current evolutionary mechanisms. I was speaking in your beginning part for your, your special viewers about the problem of developmental gene regulatory networks, the circuitry that's required to build new animal forms. That's another separate problem. So there are multiple problems with the efficacy of the Darwinian mechanism and other evolutionary mechanisms. But on the alternative side, the features that make the Cambrian explosion possible are features of life that we know from other experience. Let me put it differently, that in order to build new forms of life, the key things that we've learned since the molecular biological revolution is that we need new information. In our computer world, we know that if you want to give your computer a new function, you've got to give it new lines of code. Same thing is true in the biological realm. If you want to build a new animal form, if you want to build a trilobite or a brachiopod or one of the forms that arises in the Cambrian that was not present in the pre-Cambrian, there has to be information for building those forms of life. And the origin of information is a huge problem for Darwinian and other evolutionary mechanisms. And yet we do know of a cause that generates information, functional information, and that is intelligent agency. So those big infusions or bursts or increases in the information content of the biosphere that occur at those points of morphological innovation in the fossil record, I think are plausibly and better explained as acts of mind, as the 19th century paleontologist Louis Agassiz used to put it. 
So that's uh, quite a bit of information. And your first two books, Signature and Darwin's Dad, are quite long books, present quite a scientific case, along with Behe, Jonathan Wells, Gunter Beckley. There's quite a bit of scientists who are working on this. And yet mainstream science really doesn't even try to address these arguments very often. They don't seem to take intelligent design seriously. Why do you think that is? Well, in a way, I don't entirely concede the premise of the question, because as soon as a scientist like Gunter Beckley leaves mainstream science, as soon as he embraces intelligent design, then he's no longer considered a mainstream scientist. So mainstream is just, it's a tautological equivalence between people who accept uh, materialistic evolutionary theories and then the people who don't are not mainstream. I mean, it's, it's a meaningless designation anymore. It doesn't confer any authority on people who have a different view. Beckley was curating the bicentennial exhibition at the Stuttgart Museum of Natural History celebrating the life and work of Charles Darwin. It was ha also happened to be the sesquicentennial celebration of the origin of the species. And his story is that he developed a museum display that included a scales of justice. And on one side of the scale, he had placed the book, The Origin of Species. And on the other side, for purpose of ridicule, he placed a number of the recently published books advocating the theory of intelligent design. And then against the laws, contrary to the laws of physics, he made the origin of species side of the scale go down and the heavier books making the case for intelligent design go up. And he had a caption that said, the origin of species, the one book that outweighs them all. And one of his colleagues said, Gunther, if you're going to make fun of the ID people, you'd better read their books because you're our media spokesman and you might get asked about them. And Gunter later said, that was my mistake. I did read their books. And I got an interesting communication from him in 2009 when all this was going on, asking if I would call him at home, not at the museum, and certainly please do not reply an email. But he wanted to talk because he, having read our stuff, he was, uh, had become convinced that we were being unfairly maligned that our case was much more scientific than people realize, that the problems with Darwinism or neo-Darwinism or the extended synthesis, take your pick, were actually much deeper and more profound than his colleagues were letting on, and that he had actually had a few doubts himself even before reading our books, and now this was causing him to have a deep think. When, seven years later, he announced that he was no longer a proponent of mainstream evolutionary views, again, emphasizing mainstream and had instead affirmed intelligent design, well, then he was deemed no longer mainstream. But all that meant was that he had changed his mind. And so we have a number of cases like this that show that mainstream scientists are taking intelligent design very seriously. But as soon as they do, they're no longer considered mainstream. So there will never be ma a mainstream scientist who accepts intelligent design, because as soon as they accept it, they're by definition no longer mainstream. I mean, at some point, there may be so many of us that we get to say, well, we're mainstream. What I, what I would say now is I think we have the intellectual initiative in the arguments, the kinds of objections and challenges that we're posing to mainstream evolutionary biologists about the adequacy, for example, uh, the efficacy and creative power of the mutation selection mechanism are not being answered, but instead are actually in mainstream literature being acknowledged, though not as they're not being acknowledged as concessions to proponents of intelligent design. They're simply being acknowledged as problems with the mainstream theory. This came out in the 2016 
conference convened by the Royal Society or convened at the Royal Society on uh, new trends in evolutionary theory. And the, the first presenter there, Gerd Muller, presented a talk on the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism and listed five, all five of which could have come out of any of the publications of ID proponents. He's not an ID proponent. He's looking for a third way, but there's a lot more flux in this debate. And so you may, you may have triggered me by using the word mainstream, because I just think it, it signifies absolutely nothing any, anymore, except that people don't want to consider talking, they don't want to consider the possibility of intelligent design. Well, Jonathan wrote that question, so you can blame him for that one. <laughs> well, it's, 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 uh, it's always fun to get triggered, actually. It's good. It's good. Gets us more views. It does. It gets us way more views. So kind of on that point, I was at a conference a few years back at Oxford where there was an intelligent design talk, and I sat through it, and about halfway through, I realized that the speaker had not actually read through many intelligent design books because he kept strawmanning. He kept saying intelligent design posits that God is the creator and, you know, very basic elementary things like that. But I just see this so frequently as I see straw well, of arguments. Yeah, it's, it's obviously the, the world we, we live in. But uh, I remember the first time I was on the BBC debating um, Peter Atkins. He critiqued my position as if I were a young earth creationist and really had no idea what my actual arguments were or were going to be. And when I therefore was able to explain them, he was caught pretty flat-footed because it just was not, I was not the straw man that he had in his mind, but he hadn't done it. He hadn't done even a basic amount of research about position of the person that he was going to be having a discussion with. So we've seen that phenomenon as well. As a debater, when you're put in that position, it actually, it's kind of unfortunate for the other guy because it's pretty easy to refute arguments. When a person misrepresents you, it's pretty easy to make a better case, you know, and just explain, well, that's not what I'm arguing. Here's what I am arguing. What do you think of that? And he wasn't prepared to respond to that. So, Well, one of the objections we often hear against intelligent design, and you can tell us if this is a straw man or not, we sometimes hear that intelligent design is a god of the gaps argument. What is the god of the gaps and how might you respond to that accusation? Yeah, sure. That's a very common one. And um, it's not a straw man objection because it's an actual objection that people, are, <laughs> people make that objection. So let's, let's talk about it. God of the gaps is a shorthand way of referring to the, inform, the fallacy from informal logic known as an argument from ignorance. And arguments from ignorance have the following form. Cause A is insufficient to produce effect X. Therefore, cause B produced effect X and cause B is the best explanation of X. That's not how we're arguing. That is a fallacy because if you're not providing any evidence that cause B has the capability of producing the effect, then it cannot stand as a good explanation of the effect. And so you are arguing from ignorance. You're arguing from ignorance of what cause B can do. So that's not the way we make the case for intelligent design. If we look at the effect in question, for example, the one that I've focused on as the specified or functional information or specified complexity that's present in biomacromolecules in cells and say, well, we know that neither chance nor physical chemical necessity nor the combination of the two is sufficient to produce that information. If I then said, therefore, it must have been produced by an intelligence or by God, I would be guilty of an argument from ignorance or a God of the gaps argument. But that's not how I argue. I then 
in addition to showing that those three types of causation lack efficacy with respect to that particular effect, specified information, I then point out and offer evidence that we do know of another cause that is capable of producing that effect, and that cause is conscious agency. And then I offer a number of lines of evidence, both from our ordinary experience and from prebiotic simulation experiments, in fact, which require intelligence to generate biologically relevant macromolecules that intelligence is capable of generating the effect in question, namely information or specified information. And so then on that basis, I argue that intelligent design or conscious activity provides the best explanation, the most causally adequate explanation for the effect in question, which is the origin of the information necessary to build the first living cell. So it's not an argument from ignorance. It's an argument from our knowledge of the cause and effect structure of the world and our knowledge of the effect that needs to be explained. I once asked Lawrence Krauss, the atheist scientist, what things gave him pause about his position? What things had the theists said to him that made him think maybe there's something to this? Was there any doubts that he had? And he responded, no, not at all. I've never heard anything that was worth <laughs> thinking about. And I wonder, do you have some areas that you still struggle with? What are some of the major doubts you still have? And perhaps could you speak to the role of doubt in the Christian life and in the life of the Christian scientist? The, the kinds of doubts that I think are most troubling for me, as speaking as a Christian, are not really the intellectual questions that, are, that form the subject of philosophy seminars or any of these, these the big questions about scientific origins, though I'll come back to one. I think with most people of faith, the big questions are things about the events in one's own life. Why did this happen rather than that? All of us have disappointments. All of us have experienced suffering. It's one thing to say, why does God allow suffering in the abstract? We can talk about the free will defense against the problem of evil. I think as a philosophical matter, it's very compelling. The free will defense is very compelling. But there's the question of when you have loss or disappointment or suffering in your own life, I think that's where these things become very acute. And I think all of us have, we're all subject to the human condition. And those are, I think, are where we all want answers that we may not get this side of glory. And uh, I do think there is glory coming. And that, that I believe that one of the greatest statements ever made was, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, yet though he die, yet will he live. And I I'm a convinced Christian and believe that there is hope of resurrection life as a result of what Jesus Christ accomplished. But there are many things that I don't think I and other Christians will know about their own lives as to why God allowed this or why he directed us in that way rather than another way, or why this person we know that we love very much suffered. Those are the sorts of questions, the existential questions, I think, are the ones that are the deepest and the ones that are hardest to answer, because I don't think all of those things will be revealed in this life. In the matter of, as it pertains to what we've been discussing, the models of, of origins, I think the hardest questions for theists have to do with the, what sometimes theologians call the problem of natural evil. We can explain a lot of evil in the world as a result of, used to be called man's inhumanity to man. And the fact that God has given us the freedom to choose, and that he saw that it was better to allow us the freedom even to choose wrongly 
than it was to create mere puppets. And I found that free will defense, I think, is is compelling and satisfactory when it pertains to human action. But there are things that go wrong in the world that are not the direct result of human action that seem to be the result of something having gone wrong in nature. And uh, I remember the Australian film in the 80s, The Man from Snowy River. The, the Australian cowboy is on some great mountain peak and it's looking at this storm brewing. And he says, when you look at nature, and one, one minute it looks like paradise and the next minute it looks like it's going to kill you, he said. And there is this kind of dual aspect of nature where we see, we see evidence of, of clear evidence of design, but we also see evidence of decay. And we have antibiotic resistant bacteria and nasty bugs and lots of things in nature that seem to be almost malevolent, almost certainly harmful to humans. And so I think those are the things that ID proponents are often pressed to answer. What, what about this seeming evidence of bad design or uh, malevolent? And I, I have a couple of things to say about that. I think those are the most difficult questions. But the one is that as a Bible-believing proponent of intelligent design, I expect to see not one type of thing, but two things in nature. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that uh, from the things that are made, the unseen qualities of the Creator are clearly manifest as eternal power and divine wisdom. Yes, I think we see evidence of that. But it also says that in Romans 8, it says that the creation is, has been subjected to frustration and is subject to decay. So we also see evidence of degradation of an aboriginal design. And that's, I think, what we should expect to see if we are proponents of intelligent design who are also biblical theists. And interestingly, I think that is what we see. We see both those things. We don't have a complete theodicy. We don't know how all instances of natural evil entered the world, but we are told to expect both evidence of design and evidence of subsequent decay. And I, I do have a colleague that works on this, uh, Scott Minnick, a microbiologist. He tells me that instances of virulence at the molecular level, bad bugs and bad viruses, are invariably the consequence of a loss of genetic information, which I think is very suggestive from an ID framework, because we see the inputs of information as evidence of, of intelligence. It looks like these the origin of many of the virulent strains of bacteria and viruses that we encounter are a consequence of a loss of information, sort of a, an, a devolution, a devolutionary breakdown of an aboriginal design that was good. So I think there's some hints in our scientific research of that other facet of things that there is degradation of an original design. That's what we should expect biblically, and we are seeing evidence of that scientifically as well. So I don't think it's an unanswerable question, but I think it's a difficult one and one that ID proponents who are working in areas like Scott Minnick are increasingly addressing. This was just part of our interview with Dr. Meyer. We have over twice the content for this episode on our Patreon. For only $5 a month, you can hear us ask Dr. Meyer some more personal questions about his own intellectual development and career. We have a discussion with him where we dive deeper into the issues of intelligent design. And we even have an exclusive discussion where Jonathan and I reflect on many of the things you just heard in this conversation. All that and much more, including unaired episodes and even the possibility to talk with Jonathan and I yourself. Check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As an up-and-coming podcast, 
those little things really, really help. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.